It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, everyone. It's Professor Buzzkill here, busting myths, taking names. And today we are taking on one of the biggest myths and the most strongly held myths and then the hardiest myths, certainly in American culture, but also in all in the cultures of all capitalist societies, really, it seems to me, by, by the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century. And that is the myth of the free market being all powerful and all good. Fortunately for you, you don't have to listen to me talk about this because we have Dr. Naomi Oreskes and Dr. Eric Conway on the line who are here to talk about their new book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Dr. Oreskes, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. And Dr. Conway, thanks for also for coming on the show. Well, glad to do it. Thanks for having us. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I, I we we are bicoastal here in the sense that Dr. Conway, you're at the Jet Propulsion Lab and at Caltech, and Dr. Reskus, you're at Harvard. That's correct. Uh, yep, but I'm not here representing NASA, so I, I have I'm always have <laughs> no, to say okay. that. Okay, you're you're also both the authors of the fan, fantastic book that came out a few years ago, Merchants of Doubt, which also busted a great numbers of myths, and we're going to have that on the Buzzkill bookshelf for Buzzkill to talk about. But when this book was sent to me by the publisher, I was shocked, especially by the second half, by, by the, the details in the chapters, because I hadn't realized how much big government had monkeyed with the ideology of, of free markets to make it more corporate, frankly. Dr. Oreskes, what started the two of you down the road of writing this book? Well, in some ways, this book is a sequel to Merchants of Doubt, because when Eric and I wrote Merchants of Doubt, the big question we had was why would intelligent, educated people reject hard-earned scientific findings? Because the people we studied were educated and they were intelligent. And so it was clear that whatever it was we were looking at, it wasn't simply a problem of public understanding of science or scientific illiteracy, which is what a lot of people at the time thought it was. And what we found was that the climate change deniers were market fundamentalists. That is to say, they believed in the power of, quote, the free market. They believed that markets were efficient and government was inefficient. And more to the point, they believed that if governments became involved in trying to remedy climate change, trying to remedy the market failure that climate change is and was, that it would put us on a slippery slope to totalitarianism. And it was very clear from their writings that they believed that. I think we came to conclude that they believed it authentically, and it motivated them to reject science that pointed out market failure. So we left the book with that because the book was already long enough, but we were left with another question. And of course, all good research leads to new questions. And the new question was, well, why would intelligent, educated people believe in market fundamentalism? Because there are so many ways in his which history clearly showed that market failure is a real thing. And then when market failures occur, you need some form of governance, could be corporate governance, could be the federal government, could be states or provinces, but you need some kind of governance to remedy the market failure. So why would people not know that to be true? And so that's what set us on this journey of trying to better understand the origins and the impacts of market fundamentalist thinking. Dr. Conway, why, why do free market absolutists take this as, uh, or 
Why did they eventually start to take this as an element of belief, as, as someone's almost in their DNA, as if to question any part of it is irrational and unnatural is what seems to me they argue all the time. Why did that happen? Well, that happened, I think, partly through through a historical process. They've and we have been propagandized now for longer than any individual's been alive. And when you grow up in a sea of propaganda, you take a lot of it to be true. And to be true is a matter of faith and not just of evidence, because most people don't most people don't question most of what they're taught. We all can't go through life questioning every single thing. So we tend to believe things that make sense for us. And they drew on that. This is what the best propagandists do for a living and have known how to do since, you know, we talk about Bernays in the book and how our actors, our corporate affiliated actors and, and so on, drew on his expertise. And we also show you, for example, how they went out and, and deliberately tried to build market fundamentalism into Christian theology. So it would all be taught to us in church as a revealed truth and not just a scientific one, right? Or not merely a scientific one, I guess I should say. Let's start then, if you don't mind, talking about the origins of the ideas of market and the operations of market. Traditionally, we're ta taught in college that most of this starts with Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations and other writings. Is that right, Dr. Oreskes? No, it's not. And one of the things that's so stunning about this story is how even the most obvious things get brushed aside in the pursuit of this propagandist ideology. So if you stop and think for just even a moment, you realize that the whole association of markets with capitalism is untrue. Markets have existed for just about as long as civilization existed. If you look at the evidence, the archaeological evidence from ancient Assyria, from Mesopotamia, from ancient Greece and Rome, you see markets everywhere. In fact, if you go to Pompeii, there are excavations where you can see, there's a wonderful excavation I saw one time, which is a shop in which in the stone, like the stone is carved out from the places where people picked up coins. So markets go back as long as people, and not only do markets go back, but market regulation goes back. So if you read your Bible, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that in Leviticus, there are discussions about how markets should be managed. There are discussions about how to treat workers, about not keeping labor's wages overnight. So the idea that we have markets, the idea that we have rules to regulate and operate markets is as old as antiquity. But somehow the market fundamentalists have made us believe that somehow markets are tied up solely with capitalism and that the story begins then in 1776 with Adam Smith, when of course that's not true. And then part of that, and the reason why this mythologizing of Adam Smith is so important is because then they can construct the idea that Smith somehow promoted a notion of free markets that were completely unregulated, but that's false too. And so a big part of the intervention we make in this book is a re-examination of Adam Smith. Dr. Conway, what did Smith actually say? Because very few people have read him firsthand in my experience, when talking with libertarians and other people. If you've read The Wealth of Nations, you realize why, because it's not an easy book to read. Oh, right. no. oh yeah, a, oh yeah. It's a very big book. So I guess what we've done is kind of focus on what gets left out in our modern translations of The Wealth of Nations. For example, one of the important things that was important to Adam Smith was the need for banking regulation. He lived in an era in which bank regulation was not loved amongst bankers, and also the era in which there's struggles over, even then, over paper currency versus hard money, gold, silver, etc. So he talks a lot about how Scottish banks had nearly brought the United Kingdom to into bankruptcy by issuing too many paper notes, and which he considered practically a sin. And so he wanted strict regulation of banks. But you don't find that very often in modern translations of the wealth of nations, because that's not the story that economists want us to understand, right? They've too much of our professional classes have absorbed a very narrow view of Smith, because there are certain aspects of, of Adam Smith's desire for state regulation that our professional classes, our economics classes, our businessmen don't want to hear. Well, yeah, I'll just jump in and just want add, add one detail, which is that it's not just that some or many versions of the Wealth of Nations 
don't include Smith's discussion of the need for banking regulation or his extensive discussion of the need to pay workers a decent wage or his defense of what we would today call unionization. But it's very specifically that when the University of Chicago publishes an edited version of The Wealth of Nations, all of this is left out. And that's, of course, one of the most influential versions. It was edited by George Stigler, who was one of the most important uh, figures in the Chicago School of Economics. So it's a very central piece of the puzzle of American, American economics, American market fundamentalism that presents to students this very misrepresented version of Adam Smith. Well, how does that happen? I mean, how are they allowed to get away with that? Does, the University of Chicago is a pretty hard-nosed place, uh, certainly always has been, you know. Yeah. How did the free market project sort of run roughshod over the University of Chicago press? It didn't editors and people point out, wait a minute, this is uh, you're, you're hacking out huge hunks of important parts of Smith's arguments. You know what I mean? How, how does this happen in an editorial sense, in a scholarly sense, that they're allowed to get away with g giving only half the story? Well, I think there's a couple of elements to the answer to that question. But one part of it is that a lot of this was done through popularization. So in the book, we talk about Stigler's edited version of The Wealth of Nations. We talk about the Reader's Digest version of Friedrich von Hayek's famous neoliberal book, The Road to Serfdom. So because this was done as popularizations that were aimed at ordinary citizens, which propaganda generally is, it didn't go through academic peer review. So these are not peer reviewed works. And one of the ironies is that these people who are such cheerleaders for competition don't actually mm -hmm. compete in the academic marketplace of ideas. And in fact, the free market project at Chicago was not funded through a competitive process through an agency like the National Science Foundation. I mean, it didn't quite exist yet. Well, it was sort of just getting started when this was being done, but it was funded by a group of business people who had an explicit agenda to promote a pro-market anti-government ideology and hand-picked people who they wanted to be involved in this. So again, one of the stories we tell in the book is about how Friedrich von Hayek comes to America, comes to the University of Chicago. So you might naively think that the University of Chicago had put out an ad and that people competed and they collected references and read their work, but that's not what happened. He was actually hired behind closed doors when a group of businessmen who are sort of key characters in the story actually went to the University of Chicago president and said, we want you to hire this man and we will pay his salary for 10 years. This is incredibly irregular. It turned out that the economics department of Chicago had actually rejected Hayek because his work wasn't actually empirically validated, but these business people went behind closed doors and arranged for him to be hired. So, Dr. Reskis, uh, who who was Fred Friedrich Hayek? We, we need more context and more background, I think. Friedrich von Hayek is considered one of the founders of neoliberalism. He was a member of the Austrian School of Economics, which was a group of people um, a small group, but an influential group in Europe who were promoting the idea that governments should not be involved in economics. They should not be involved in economic planning. There should not be industrial policy, and they should not regulate the marketplace um, by and large. Although, again, there's another story about how Hayek gets misrepresented too. But neoliberal economics is about really putting forward a very market forward forward orientation. And some of this comes out of the Great Depression when uh, countries in Europe where governments were in fact actively intervening in the marketplace to try to pull economies out of the depression. Most of his ideas in Europe are considered frankly ridiculous because in the face of the Great Depression, to say that governments should just stand by and do nothing seems frankly at best inhumane and at worst preposterous. So von Hayek is not really very influential in the United States. But in 1944, he publishes a book, The Road to Serfdom, where he puts forward this basic idea. And especially he puts forward an idea that in the book we describe as the indivisibility thesis. It's this idea that political and economic freedom are indivisible. And therefore, if you compromise economic freedom, you will be soon on the road to compromising political freedom, and they're on the road to totalitarianism, or what Hayek calls the road to serfdom. Now, this idea appeals very, very deeply to American business conservatives, because this is exactly the argument they need, because they don't want the American government 
telling them that they have to have an eight hour working day or pay a minimum wage. So they bring von Hayek to America and they begin a systematic program to promote his views in the United States. And then, Dr. Conway, how does how do these views get? I mean, he gets into gets into the, into the University of Chicago, you know, employment ranks in sort of this backhanded manner, as you both said. How does his view spread from this handful of important industry leaders to the rest of what you might say, just call as a gross oversimplification, American the American capitalist class? Well, so they'd actually started before Hayek came to America back during the 1930s. And so this basic idea for the National Association of Manufacturers that they called the tripod of freedom and also the indivisibility thesis Naomi was just talking about is actually something that the National Association of Manufacturers puts together kind of in the second half of, of the 1930s. And we're already beginning to spread through the American population through billboard campaigns and, and radio advertising and so forth. What Hayek gives them after World War II is intellectual credibility. And so they can then claim the imprimatur of the University of Chicago for these ideas that they wanted broadcast anyway. So they'd already been preparing the ground and Hayek gives them more ground if you if you want to think about it that way. So then we start getting things like the the Look Magazine version of of the Road to Serfdom and etc. Yeah, and we should tell the buskers Look Magazine was sort of like the light version of Life Magazine. Am I am I am I right about that? I'm I was born after Look came out or after Look stopped, I think. But it wasn't exactly an academic journal. No, not at all. In fact, it was one of Look and Life were the two two of the most popular magazines published in the United States. They went to millions and millions of American homes. And so the way these propagandistic ideas are promoted, not just in the capitalist class, but to ordinary Americans who would receive these magazines in the mail, have them on their coffee table in their living room. And so they published a car literal cartoon version of the road to serfdom, where the entire argument of the book is reduced to 18 cartoons, little graphics, and really stripped of all of its subtlety. So in the same way that they stripped Adam Smith of many of his caveats, they also stripped out a lot of the caveats that Hayek had said. So in fact, Hayek did not argue for completely unregulated markets. In fact, there's a line in his book where he even says, you have to stop arguing against government intervention. That doesn't make sense. The question is, where do you draw the line? And he does, he explicitly says, you know, you you might want regulations against deforestation or pollution. Um, he uses those two examples specifically. But overall, he's saying you want to be really, really cautious about allowing the government to do these things. But that nuance, those caveats is completely stripped out. And in the cartoon version, the government gets involved in the economy during the Great Depression and World War II. And at the end of the, when you get to the final cartoon, it's a firing squad. Well, it's certainly easier for most people to understand the Look Magazine version of things and the cartoon version of things. And when we get to Ronald talk about Ronald Reagan and his interpretation of these things after the break, I think people will see why non-intellectuals, non-academics jump on this stuff so much. It sounds very much like the way people listen to talk show hosts now and what the, the, the class of people that I call celebrity analysts like Bill Maher and Alex Jones and and people who are you know really just corrupting evidence and and making simplified versions of it. What what I found so interesting also though is that there are these two organizations. Dr. Conway, you mentioned the National Association of Manufacturers a minute ago, but there's also the National Electric Light Association. You know, this sounds like big light bulb, you know, ooh, how scary can that be? You know, it just doesn't sound like something that's going to be out there, um, you know, creating policy or at least creating heavy-duty intellectual <laughs> debates about what should be done about the economy, the National Electric Light Association. But it obviously was. Yep. They were all wrapped up in the National Electric Light Association was um, the predecessor of the Edison Electric Institute that we have now. And their concern was, again, to keep government out of electricity regulation entirely. Um, and there's a period, again, prior to the, the Great Depression, when utility regulation was a very big deal. 
because there were there were financial shenanigans going on within the industry. There was the problem that private enterprise private electric companies had expanded electricity through the cities, but not out into the countryside. They considered it unprofitable. So there were reformers who wanted the state, the states in the United States, the federal government to to electrify rural America too, to to help the farmers and so forth. And so NILA organized an enormous propaganda campaign to prevent federal regulation and even state regulation of electric utilities and to prevent government-supported electrification of the countryside. And eventually they're caught and they're Big congressional hearings about this, and and ultimately, maybe Naomi would like to talk more about it, but ultimately, Neela puts itself out of business because they were caught so red-handed, they just had no credibility left. Now, why would they want to be against rural electrification? Because it was, wasn't as profitable because... Yes, you 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 were uh, serving fewer and fewer That's customers, right. but you had to stretch these lines out. It's, it's a high okay. capital cost investment to string wires all over the countryside for very little return. So they simply didn't want to do it. And there was evidence from from Canada, for example, from from Western Europe, both which most countries in Western Europe electrified faster than the United States did, even though most of the technologies were invented here, because the states got involved and said, "Look, this is." good for people overall. And and that's just not the message that American utilities wanted said. Yeah, and I think that's a really telling, it's just, if I can add it, it's a really telling point, right? Because the advocates of the free market will always tell us how free markets are more efficient. But actually, if you look at the history of electricity, what you see is that the countries in which the government got involved in electricity, where they saw electricity as a public good and not just a commercial commodity, those countries electrified more quickly, more extensively, and often at lower cost than in the United States. But it becomes a big congressional scandal. They get hauled before Congress and told not to, or am I misunderstanding? Uh, It's not Congress that investigates them. It's the FTC, which is created um, in the 1930s. So what happens is the FTC looks at this. This is the Federal Trade Commission. Federal Trade Commission, right. So the Federal Trade Commission looks at this in hindsight and says it's a massive propaganda campaign. It's disinformation. It's fraud. But at the time, there were no securities regulations that made what they did illegal. If NILA had done what they did in the 1940s, it would have been illegal and they could have been prosecuted. Wow. This is just this is just amazing. It's amazing that there's so much of this activity going on. This is a good place for us to take a little sponsorship break. Our, our capitalist corporate overlords insist around 20 <laughs> minutes, 25 minutes that we take a sponsorship break. So Buzzkillers will be back with Dr. Oreskes and Dr. Conway and the big myth, how American business taught us to loathe government and love the free markets in just a moment. Okay, we're back, Buzzkillers, with Dr. Naomi Oreskes and Dr. Eric Conway talking about the big myth how American business taught us to loathe government and love the free market. Professors, before we left, we were talking about all kinds of things. The ways in which Adam Smith's arguments were changed and corrupted by and oversimplified and cartoonized by uh, certain people, certain business groups in the United States, the way even Friedrich Hayek's ideas were trimmed down to make them more, I don't know, billboard-worthy, cartoon-worthy, and Reader's Digest-worthy. What happens in the 20th century later as things as things go on? Because after all, we have the Great Depression, which is, in some ways is showing us the failures of, of the free market. But then, the and certainly the war and all the government spending that's necessary for the war. What happens after, you know, Hayek's been here for a while and the word is getting out and they're billboardizing everything and putting stuff in Look magazine? What's happening in the 50s as the sort of consumer society starts to ramp up? How do these ideas become even further propagandized, if you will? Dr. Reskin. The University of Chicago then becomes a central node in the story. So the same people who brought Friedrich von Hayek to America and promoted his work uh, in cartoon form in Look Magazine also fund the free market project at the University of Chicago. And the point of this project is to develop a kind of intellectual base to give credibility to these views and to make it seem as if these are robust academic arguments. And so they fund a variety of activities there. But one of the most important is the work of 
Milton Friedman. And Friedman is someone that many people have heard of. He becomes arguably the most famous economist of the 20th century and certainly the most famous proponent of neoliberal anti-government views. He is funded by these business executives to develop a lecture series putting forward these views. It's essentially the same argument that has been being promoted going back to the 1930s by the National Association of Manufacturers. The idea that capitalism and freedom are interlinked and that if you compromise capitalism, even in small ways, you're on the road to compromising political freedom. And therefore, if you believe in political freedom, if you believe in democracy, you have to reject government involvement in the marketplace, even if it's to remedy an obvious ill like child labor or the harms of smoking tobacco. And so he gives a series of lectures funded by these business executives, and that becomes his book, Capitalism and Freedom. Capitalism and Freedom is published in 1962, and it becomes a bestseller. Milton Friedman is invited to become a regular columnist for Newsweek magazine. And then again, some business, uh, a different businessman then becomes involved with the idea to pay to make it into a television series on public television. And what's really interesting is if you watch this television series, it's called Freedom to Choose. So the whole emphasis is this idea that we're defending freedom by defending free markets and that these two things, if we don't have free markets, we lose our political freedom. If you watch these, it was a 13-part series. Normally today, if you watch public television, there's always that thing in the beginning that says this was made possible by generous contributions from X, Y, and Z. In this series, there's no mention of who is funding this. So one of the mm. things that we did was to try to figure out who had actually funded this. And not surprising, you find that it's heavily funded by a number of different American corporations. So this means that it's not as if Friedman's ideas are competing in the open marketplace and making their way to the top on their own, on their own value and their own worth. They're being put forward, they're being sort of forced on the rest of the public by by very wealthy people. Is that right, Dr. Conway? I think that's that's essentially right. They're kept in the public eye for decades by businesses which have an agenda to promote themselves. Um, another example we give in the book is is Ronald Reagan's era at General Electric in the 50s, when his his job was to promote free market, free business, high, the rights of businessmen to promote technologies on electric circuit and through a tweet through a TV show, the G Theater. Do you mind telling us more about how he is captivated by Friedman? Because it seems to me, if I'm remembering correctly, that most people in the 80s come to Friedman through Reagan, most of the regular public, the general public. And then Friedman is read by everybody and everyone in the 1980s on college campuses running around being a, a, a pseudo-libertarian. How does Reagan sort of, is it because of this GE work that he gradually reads himself into Friedman's beliefs, or is he just sort of handed to him and told what to say? Well, Reagan is really a key figure in, yeah, Reagan is a key figure in this transition because almost all Americans know that before he was president of the United States, Ronald Reagan was an actor. But what, we, that, what they don't know, what we didn't know until we did this book, was how that transition from actor to politician took place. And the truth is that in between being an actor and being governor of California, Ronald Reagan had another job, and it was as a propagandist for General Electric Corporation. While he worked for General Electric, his job entailed two things. He was the host of General Electric Theater, which, as Eric just said, promoted a very individualist, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't need government to help you view of the world but also going on the lecture circuit to GE factories, communities where GE operated, speaking to rotary clubs, chamber of commerce, school groups, school children, promoting the GE ideology, which was very explicitly anti-government and anti-union. In fact, it was so anti-union that General Electric was actually prosecuted for violations of labor laws. Now, the interesting thing about Reagan is we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that he goes to GE, a New Deal Democrat, and he comes out an anti-government Republican. And we know something about how that happened, because one of the things that GE did during this time period is that they had reading lists that they would give out to their employees, particularly their executives and their factory managers. And these people would be instructed that they should read these materials. And we know that one of the things that Reagan read was Hayek's Road to Serfdom, probably the Reader's Digest version, and a whole bunch of other 
pro-market anti-government tracts from this time period. Now, he doesn't read Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom because that doesn't come until later. But when he leaves GE, he leaves with two things, a new ideology, which is essentially identical to the ideology that was promoted at General Electric. And he leaves with a set of very wealthy corporate backers. And we know that these corporate backers play a key role in helping to finance and organize his campaign when he runs for governor of California. That's astounding. And so we don't, so Reagan doing these GE promotions and lectures and then the televisions show has an enormous impact on American thinking, American popular thinking anyway. Exactly. And Reagan becomes one of the most famous people in the United States because General Electric Theater is hugely popular. So his voice and his persona are now being streamed into the homes of millions and millions of Americans every single week. So just as Americans would have received Look Magazine and its version of Von Hack into their living rooms, now they're receiving Ronald Reagan as the spokesperson for the General Electric view of the world on television every, I forget whether it ran on Thursdays or Fridays, but at once a week. And so he becomes a very famous person. And this is part of why he's able then to launch a political career um, after what was essentially a failed career as a Hollywood actor. Well, Dr. Conway, though, how does this, is is this how this sort of, I don't want to say leaks into, but, but becomes accepted in large parts of the American consciousness? Because as you rightly point out in the book, you know, the first person to to put these ideas into place or the first person to start government deregulation from the presidential level is actually Jimmy Carter. And most people are surprised to hear that. But you talk about, you both talk about this period where it's Carter, Reagan slash Bush number one, and then Clinton, who sort of, you know, have this whole theory of, the whole theory of government, big government's days being over and government regulation being a bad thing. But actually, if it if it starts with Jimmy Carter, then it must have gotten into the American consciousness pretty strongly, not just on the right wing. Oh, yeah. So what that's re- one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this book is because you you see um, as early as 1960 with the Barry Goldwater campaign that these kind of right wing ideas are coming back into fashion, but not just we can't just say it's just in a narrow segment of the GOP because there are other and tantalizing moments. There's, for example, in the Kennedy administration, he broaches the idea of of transportation deregulation, and it goes nowhere. Congress won't hear of it. But here's the supposedly liberal JFK already starting wanting to begin on doing major elements of, of the New Deal state. So even then, it's having starting to have effects. The, the propaganda is starting to have effects. And so then we kind of tell the story in the book that, you know, by the time we get to the 70s, you know, there are lots of bits of the American economy that's not working very well anymore. And yet here's a set of new ideas, or at least they seem new, that Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter begins to draw upon somewhat carefully. Uh, he was not the kind of deregulator that Reagan would become and pursue deregulation to introduce markets to places that had been kind of closed off, frankly, with the, with various New Deal legislation like trucking and air aviation and, and so forth to begin to bring competition back in. And, and I think, I think, and I hope Naomi agrees with me, that this is because now there's economic problems, there's a potential solution, and lots of the public's already behind these ideas because they've now been hearing about them for 30-something years in church, in their magazines, on their television sets, in their radios, and I think that helps create this movement that then Carter is the first to begin questioning and starting to rework policy. Well, importantly, you you, you mentioned in the book that he, he does talk about deregulating trucking, aviation, national nat- natural gas, and stuff like that. But he doesn't go so far as to call for deregulation of worker protection and public health and environmental thing. He's not as strong a believer in the purity of deregulation as then Reagan becomes. That's right. So that we think there is a difference between what Carter does and what Reagan does. Carter was trying to pursue a more more free markets with also a more human face, if you want to think about it, a more humane version of it. Yeah, I mean, if I can jump in, I think Please. one of the key things that Reagan does, and it's really, what's the right word for it? I mean, 
it's kind of nefarious, right? He uses the word deregulation actually to refer to two different things. So one thing is deregulating a marketplace which has not been competitive, as Eric just said. So trucking was highly, highly regulated. It was, and so competition was really stifled. And so Carter said, and I think you know we broadly agree with this. Well, this is a place where we could bring in competition, and we could actually, you know, we might be able to lower prices and make things more efficient through competition. But Reagan uses the word deregulation not just to refer to creating competitive markets where they haven't been before, but to weakening protections like weakening environmental laws or weakening protections for workers like occupational safety and health protection or weakening laws that protect children from child labor. And that's really a very, very different thing. But he uses the same word for both. And we've been using the same word for both ever since. And that's really, really problematic because there can be good arguments for competitive markets, but there are also extremely good arguments for laws and statutes that protect people from the harms of insufficiently, well, see, I'm using the word regulated again, so you can't get away from it. Um, (laughs) Markets can do harm, right? Like a factory can cause pollution. We wanna regulate that pollution, or I I wanna say we wanna stop or control that that pollution. But because Reagan has used the same word now for both, it actually becomes very hard to have this conversation. Wow, that's amazing. I, I didn't think of that, but it is very, very, very successful in the 80s. Am I right about that? Yes. How does it become essentially a new American creed? It's almost, I remember in the 80s, if you were a slightly left-leaning or, or, or certainly not a Reagan supporter, if you question these things, you know, people talked about you like you were uh, Stalinistic or, uh, you know, a, a flaming radical, a Che Guevara figure. And it was really very surprising because the, the rhetoric and the tone that people used was, at least it seemed to me, very religious you know, and very much the founders wanted it this way. The founders of the of the country wanted this way. And you're un-American if you don't believe it. Well, let me pick up on one thing. And then I think you should ask Eric about the explicitly religious part of this. Like, uh, So I'll talk about the sort of quasi-religious part. So you're absolutely right that by the 1980s, but even before, there's this sort of ideology that begins to develop that anyone who questions markets is some kind of communist. And that's also not a coincidence because this is part of the propaganda campaign. And it goes back to the arguments that were made in the 1930s. It's what academics would call the fallacy of the excluded middle, or we could just call it a false dichotomy. So going back to Friedrich von Hayek and the Austrian School of Economics, they posed the question as a choice between laissez-faire economics where markets are essentially completely unregulated and business people just decide what to do, or Soviet-style totalitarianism. And the whole argument of this neoliberal economic program is that there's no middle ground. Now, of course, that's ridiculous. There are all kinds of middle grounds, and you only had to look at the social democracies in Europe or places like Australia or Canada to see that there are all kinds of middle grounds. But by framing it that way, If a person then says, well, hold on, I feel like we do need stronger laws against pollution, that person can be accused of promoting communism. And we see that happen throughout the story, and we see it happening even today. I mean, when Eric and I first started working on climate change, I was accused of being a Stalinist. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm talking about climate science, and somehow that is so threatening to people that they accuse me of being a Stalinist. It is bizarre. And also, this religious, this moralistic tone is is very bizarre. Dr. Conway, how how did that happen? How did that... I, I can't... I just can't imagine this this coming from pulpits, but it actually did. It actually did. There was a parallel track in our story, almost. There's an organization founded in the, in the middle 1930s called Spiritual Mobilization by a Congregationalist minister by the name of James Fifield. He was most famously the minister, the first Congregational Church in Los Angeles. He and his organization were financed again by businessmen to help spread the the gospel of free market capitalism through churches. And he he kind of reaches the peak of his own influence in the early 1950s in the Eisenhower administration. But by then, his methods had been picked up by J. Howard Pugh, who is a who is the president of Sun Oil in the thir- in the forties and carded carried off to start other quasi-religious entities and magazines and so forth to spread free market 
thinking into American Christian theology, into seminaries, curriculums, and so forth. Um, so Americans would hear the same thing they were hearing from, from Reagan in the 50s and GE theater from the pulpits, from their ministers. Um, the reason Pew did this is he read some polling in the late 30s that said most Americans trust what their minister tells them. And that was a revelation to him. Mm -hmm. It told him that he could, if he could get proper economic thought, free market economic thought into the hands of the American clergy, they, he could transform American, popular American economic thought. Um, and so by the time we get through Reagan and the, we're in the 80s and so forth, this has been going on for more than a generation. And me included, you know, I was raised in a congregational church in New England is my, in my case, the more liberal branch, but still we heard all that rhetoric as well. Can I just say that, so J. Howard Pugh, who funds spiritual mobilization, is also an executive of the National Association of Manufacturers. So there's a direct link through J. Howard Pugh between the propaganda that's being run directly through businesses, through factories, but also this attempt to influence Christian thinking in the United States. Is there any pushback to any great degree from uh, some religions and some, some denominations? I mean, I know some aspects of Catholic teaching wouldn't wouldn't agree with this. Some aspects of Jewish teaching wouldn't agree with this. Was there any attempt by religious leaders to say, wait a minute now, <laughs> we're talking about something that, you know, is not part of faith. Where do, where do good works and all these things fit in with this message? And if they don't fit in, they are not Christian, if you will. Well, so the answer is yes. The more theologically liberal segments of American Christianity, for example, do push back against this more right-wing economic view of Christianity. But one of the things that happens in American Christendom, of course, is there is a, a transformation, really, a movement of people out of liberal churches into the evangelical churches, the more conservative ones. And so this is all going on at the same time. One thing we don't do, and I don't know how you would do it, is try to prove causality here. Because these things are going on at the same time, they may be related, but proving that they are is something we can't do. But at the same time, there's pushbacks going on from the, the more liberal denominations in American Christendom. They're losing followers. But then certainly by the end of the 20th century, this has become accepted as a fact, as just part of almost nature. You know, they're, you're going against nature by going against free markets. Free markets are natural. How then, into the 21st century, have people tried to analyze this? I mean, what seems to me my listeners are probably thinking is, okay, I can understand because of all of this that the professors have explained why non-intellectuals like Reagan and Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and people like that buy into this stuff after reading the Reader's Digest version, the oversimplified version and everything. But why do people with you know, who are who are highly educated, go to extremely elite institutions, George Will, and even up to now, Ted Cruz, why, why do they buy it and, and pronounce and, and pronounce the rhetoric as if it is actual gospel? That seems to me to be, that seems, I think, to a lot of our listeners to be, either they're faking it, or they're not thinking this thing through, or they're not, or they're completely ignoring evidence, which goes against everything they were taught in, in, in college. I'm sorry, that's a long way of saying, why do very smart, that's a long way of asking, why do very smart people fall for this? Well, we often say that our work is, we really analyze the supply side of disinformation. The demand side is a different question and probably harder to get at because it's, it involves psychological issues, values issues. I mean, I certainly can't speak for George Will, but I'd love to have that conversation with him because I love his writing, even though I almost always disagree with him. But I think the there's sort of, a few answers to that question that we could at least offer as possibilities. So one part of the, the, the answer, I think, is that because the propaganda has two parts, right? One part is that markets are great, markets are efficient, markets are wise, trust the wisdom of the marketplace. But the other part is, and governments are crap. Governments don't work, governments are inefficient, governments steal your money in this response to the State of the Union, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, government lights your money on fire, you know? So if you've come to believe that, that government is inefficient and that government programs don't work, then when you see evidence of market failure, 
you see it, you know, it's happened. I mean, everybody knows what happened in 2008. You know, the financial crisis cost Americans billions of dollars. But what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is is government statutes, government interventions, government involvement, whatever word you want to use. But if you don't believe that government remedies work, then you end up saying, well, okay, markets are imperfect. The markets did fail us, but oh, well, you know, we don't really have an alternative because we've been persuaded that there is no alternative. Remember, Margaret Thatcher famously said, Tina, there is no alternative. And in the book, we address this because, you know, that really gets my blood boiling because, of course, there are always alternatives. And when people tell us there's no alternative, it's really a way of saying you're stuck where you are and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's massively disempowering. Now, the other part of this book, the other part of this story, and we don't really get into this, but I think since you've asked the question, it's worth mentioning. There's a kind of implicit racism running through a whole lot of this story. And at various mm -hmm. places in the story, you see that come out. You asked about Jewish opposition to the Christian ideology. I mean, JRP was explicitly anti-Semitic, and you see that coming through as well. So one of the things that happens here is that the anti-government story is also tied to a kind of implicit racial coding that government is helping those people, those undeserving people, that government welfare money queens. is being waste, wasted on the welfare queens. Exactly. And so I think for a lot of people, you're hearing a message that government's not helping you, that your hard tax earned, hard earned tax money is being spent on people who aren't really worthy. And so that then also serves to kind of bring people on board this message, even though it's really a message that protects the profits and prerogatives of big business. That's exactly right. That's well said. And you see it with some of the uh, articles published in some of the early market-inflected Christian magazines, too. There's a quite explicit anti-desegregation message being spread in those. And we do, oh, we, we have a little bit in the book about that. Not as much as we once did, since it wasn't our main subject. But exactly right. There is a at least an undercurrent of racism that matters, I think, to the adoption of this anti-government line of argument in the 50s and 60s. And remember when Reagan runs for governor, and I think you, we do have oh, this yes. still in the book. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we left a lot of things on the cutting room floor, even though it may not seem that way with a 500-page book. But when Reagan runs for governor in California, one of his key items in his platform, one of the key planks, is opposing fair housing laws. And he uses the notion of property rights, which is also very heavily advocated by Milton Friedman, that you know, in a free market economy, it's your right to decide for yourself who you will or will not sell your house to. And so they use property rights as a kind of smokescreen to defend what is eff effectively racial discrimination in housing. Yep, exactly right. All of this is very astounding and very eye-opening, and I'm so grateful that Bloomsbury, the publishers, have uh, alerted me to the book. But I'd like to end up by talking about or asking you, there are a couple of, of very important sentences in your conclusion, I think, that are that I'd like to read out to the buzzkillers and also for, for you to elaborate on. I think this one is particularly good. It's time, and this is after you've analyzed all this all the way up to more or less the present day. And then the conclusion you say, it's time we rejected the myth of market fundamentalism. And by the way, you know, we are talking about people who believe it in fundamentalism, not necessarily market strength, and re-embrace the proven tools we have at our disposal. It takes governance to address the problems that people pursuing our own self-interest create. One does not have to be a socialist to come to this conclusion, only an observer. Now, as someone who's not a socialist, but it comes to this conclusion all the time, I'm so grateful to have experts actually say that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is part of the point of the book, right? That by looking at the history, I mean, economics is complicated. Political economy is complicated. These are all big questions. And it's not entirely clear what the right answer is in any one given situation. But what we see over the course of a 100-year history in the United States is many examples of market failure and many examples of government programs that have worked well. doesn't mean that every government program works, but not every business works either. And I think we say this in the book, too, when a bus businesses fail all the time, but we don't take that as a general indictment of capitalism. And yet the conservative 
wing of the Republican Party in the United States and others have tried to, you know, they'll take one example of a failed government program, like what was it, the Solyndra example, and and try to use that to discredit all government mm. programs. And that's just silly. So I think our argument is there's a role for markets, there's a role for self-interest, there's a role for individual initiative, but there's a, also a role for thinking about the common good and how we protect the public interest, and especially how we solve big problems like climate change. And I think it is worthwhile for us to bring it back to that, because that was the issue that got us into this space in the first place. Climate change is a massive market failure. The private sector doing legal things has created a problem that now threatens the very existence, health, the well-being of people and other species on this planet. And the only way we solve it is if we address the market failure and think about what kinds of actions can lead us to a different way of finding energy that doesn't threaten our own future? So I'll take it in a little bit of a different direction, it's that we're, and that's that we're still, to some degree, using the language of the market fundamentalists when we speak of you know, the need for government intervention in the economy. And I would say that fundamentally, government is part of the economy, and it structures the way markets work. And we need a language that allows us to deal with the government's role in the economy in a way that's more positive and less pejorative than we've been given by our what now a century of of free market propaganda and i think that's crucial for getting past our current problems and arguments over the proper role of of, of government in in our economy and i don't know quite what that language is um, but it's going to be necessary i think in order to do a better job of explaining to the public of how we need government, how we need government to perform its function in properly structuring and restructuring markets as the economy changes. That's a great point because one of the things Eric and I found when we were writing the book was we kept slipping into this language of intervention when in fact we reject that whole notion. And, and one thing I've thought about this is we talk about economics, but in the 18th and 19th century, people used to talk about political economy and I think that that's a much better term because mm -hmm. politics and economics are intertwined because political decisions affect the economy and economic decisions are often political decisions are often decisions that are structured by our values. So maybe if we can reintroduce the language of political economy, that will help us move this conversation forward. Well, I can't imagine a better note to end on than that one, because I think that I, I not only do agree with you, but that's, of course, the big one of the big conclusions in the book and one of the big things that you're pointing to for us to think about for the 20th, 21st century. So it just remains for me to say thank you, Dr. Conway, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Oreskes, for coming on the show. Thank you. And Buzzkiller's The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. It's on the Buzzkill bookshelf, available from Bloomsbury Publishing. It's one of the most important books of the early part of this century, I have to tell you. So please, please, please go get it. Please go to ProfessorBuzzkill.com. Do everything that you do there. Sign up for the newsletter. Rate and review us on your podcast platforms and all of that to help the show. And we will talk to all of you next week. Thank you.